0: Indeed, the Lord frustrates the plans of the wicked. He doesn't say that the wicked will not be around, but he will stop them at the right time. Let us turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 20. And hear the words of Almighty God. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. And I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them that a hand of God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gisham, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial. In Jerusalem. That is the Word of God, and we know He will bless it to our hearts. The foundations of reconstruction. Our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, after arriving in Jerusalem, because He was well prepared, Nehemiah went straight to work to examine the state of Jerusalem, particularly its walls and the adjoining buildings to the temple. And he did so in a wise and bold and determined way. And this is what you will hear about today. Our headings are three. The examination of the destruction of Jerusalem. Second, the exhortation to the reconstruction of Jerusalem. And third, the exclusion from the congregation of Jerusalem those who would not help in its reconstruction. And our goals are that you will work with your leaders to plan for the rebuilding of Christ's church that has fallen into disrepair. And that you too will be bold and determined and wise to stand up to those who oppose its rebuilding. How do we get to those goals? First, the examination of the destruction of Jerusalem. Nehemiah did not assume he knew everything, but rather the first thing he did was to work with others to examine the condition of the wall. That's some leader. The first thing he does is to get others to help him. He wanted to see the nature of the damage to Jerusalem and its walls and to evaluate what needed to be done and, of course, how they would be able to do so. So then he started to make this trip around. First, he took men with him for safety and for security. Robbers were very common. You couldn't go around at night with no, uh, some walls broken down. The gates were burned with fire. And these gates were burned with fire about a hundred years before when Nebuchadnezzar came and were not rebuilt. So robbers could go in at night. Wild animals could go in. And the dogs back then weren't the pet dogs we have today. They moved in packs. Like wolves that they are and would eat you. So he went with others. He knew the danger and he had company with him. But he only took one animal. Then you wonder why take one animal? Why not take many? Well, he didn't want to attract attention to himself. He was probably tired from his journey, so he probably rode on the animal. The others walked if you had many animals, people will suddenly perk up. What's going on here? Why are there so many people here? People were always sensitive about groups. And uh, he didn't want to draw attention to himself. And then he went to look at the places. Where did he go? He went to the Valley Gate. The Valley Gate went out to the mountains outside of Jerusalem. And this was a place that was great for perspective. Because you had the mountains. You had the valley. And then you had the mountains east of that. That's indeed where the Lord Jesus himself was crucified. But he wanted to get a picture. It's probably here. Remember Jesus himself went to the, uh, Jerusalem. And he looked over Jerusalem. And he wept when he saw the sad condition of it. And he said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to have you under my wings. As a, a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come. You were rebellious. That ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah went there to get perspective, to see how, how the wall the shape of the wall was. Then he went to some place called the, the serpent well. And why was it called a serpent well? It's because of the the winding path to get to the serpent well. Then he went to the refuge gate. Well, the refuse gate wasn't known for pleasant smells. The name was really what it was used for to take refuse and sewage out of the city. And then the fountain gate. The fountain gate was a, a place that was repaired and it worked during the time of Hezekiah's reign. But now it was so clogged with garbage, he could not go through because garbage had piled up so high. He had to come off of his donkey. To get by. But he went where he needed to go to see the state of things. He didn't hide from the reality. Nehemiah subtly did this examination during the night. This made sure there wasn't any distraction. Here is a little bit different. If you see some uh, important person coming, you might turn around and look, or you might see a limousine and you might take a look and see who might be there. But in most parts of the world, when you see something like this, suddenly you see a bunch of people together and one dressed nicely or looks a little different from the others, everyone starts to perk up and look and find what's going on here. That would have hindered him from doing the work he went there to do. And also, he did not talk to the leaders of Jerusalem yet, the priests and the other political leaders Why didn't he want to tell them? Because they were in panic of their neighbors. The people in Jerusalem wanted to just keep things the way they were. They didn't want to uh, irritate their neighbors. Not the Samaritans, not the Ammonites, and certainly not the the Arabians. Those were troublesome people. In fact, when the Jews would harvest their crops, they'd have to hide because the Arabians would come and steal Especially when it's time for sowing. They love the good seed of Palestine. So they would come and steal the seed before they were planted. And they would often have to plant at night. So the seed would not be taken away. So they didn't want anything to, to upset the apple cart as we would say. And that's why Nehemiah used this wisdom. He had to deal with many problems. He had to get a good sense of the problem. But he also had to manage the people at the same time. But he did get an examination of the situation. So what can we learn from this uh, very brief point? As he examined the destruction in Jerusalem. First of all, work with others for the good of the kingdom. Kingdom work is too important to have an ego. A minister who can't work with others or an elder who can't work with others. You're talking about trouble. You're talking about frustration with the others. We have to learn that this is much bigger than any one of us. And giving priority to others is something we should be trained to do and willing to do. We're called to work with believers. You know, the picture of uh, in Romans, as well as in Ephesians, we speak of the body as made up of many parts. And every part must work together in its particular position. And that's what Nehemiah was willing to do. He had to be a leader. He was sent there by God, but he had to get the others involved. And that's what you see. They have the same goal, the kingdom of Christ, and you must work together. Second, not just you must work together, but you must work wisely in order to advance Christ's cause. You know, there's a time to be silent. Not every time you see something, you know, you've got, had kids. If you corrected your kid for every single little thing that child sees, becomes very frustrated. That child will become very frustrated. Parents have an ability. If a child falls down, not to see when the child falls down because the child needs attention. You learn not to see the child. Similarly, we learn that we must learn when to be silent. That's what Solomon said. This was wisdom. Also, he didn't lay all his cards on the table, and neither should you. You don't always have to show everything that you're going to do. This is a sense of wisdom. And you don't have to work with every single one. He worked with people that he knew. Maybe through the contacts that he had, he worked with those people. Not with the leaders, not with these outsiders, these three men. Remember what Jesus Himself said, John sorry, Matthew chapter ten, verse sixteen. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Look at the interesting picture that the Lord says. He says, One, you have to be very cunning, wise in what you do, and yet there are times when you have to be gentle and caring and helpful. The father, who's always a monster, always a disciplinarian with no emotion, will not have the affection of the child. The child needs the affection, the soft spot, as well as the discipline. That is how we work together. And the same thing is true for every good leader. And of course, you can't work with show-offs. The work of the kingdom is bigger and it's not about ego. Men who th- think too much of themselves will not think enough about Christ. It will always, they will always end up as a way that would showcase who they are. Third, take the time to examine the danger the church is in. talked about this already before. We really need thinkers in the church. Now, in general, the Reformed churches are okay. They're not super, but they are okay. They don't do enough evangelism, and we need to do work there in particular. But we need to be able to evaluate people who are wise, ministers and elders, other lay people who have insight, to see the danger the church is in and to learn how we can resolve those problems in a biblical way. You know, the the typical way is saying, well, there are not as many people in church, so let's make worship more customer-friendly. Let's shake some bells and give everyone a position in church and we will make everything attractive. We'll put their children up and we'll have women leaders and that's the way the world has responded to the problems. But we need people who would be able to evaluate not just the doctrine that says male headship, but how do we go about in reaching others for Jesus Christ? It's not easy to go knocking doors now. People don't trust you if you go knocking doors. You stand up in the streets, it really doesn't work anymore. We need people to sit down and look at the strategies in order to build up the church. We must not live in a fool's paradise, that everything's okay. We need thinkers. Things are not well with the church. There's also an interesting thing that I note here though, is that Jesus went through that valley gate. Now, that's where he looked over Jerusalem from there, outside of that valley gate, and he went to the cross. And he looked at Jerusalem when he went to die for her sins, to fix a real problem. The main point here, though, is that why was it essential that these walls be repaired? Why is it that the temple adjoining buildings needed to be fixed? Why is it that they needed to have good leadership again in Jerusalem? This is the main point. This is the place from which Christ would come to die for the sins of the world. If Jerusalem had been taken over by another foreign nation, how would Jesus be able to come there according to the promise of God? So his job, Nehemiah's job, was to make sure that the city was safe. And you would say, of course, we don't live in such a time as this. We're not waiting for Messiah to come. But we are in the kingdom. And we have to make sure that the kingdom is strong by the things we do in the kingdom, working together in the right way. So, how did he come to this position? He examined it and said, This is trouble. Look at the refuse. Look at the smell of the place. Look at the broken down walls. Look at the gates. He then started his exhortation for the reconstruction of Jerusalem, or second point. Nehemiah then exhorted the Jews, the leaders in particular, to begin reconstruction and repair the walls of the city and the building adjoining the temple. He understood that he had to speak up as a leader to get people on board. We don't like to think about these things because we like to think simply of spiritual things that miraculously people are going to get to that point. But you need to be able to speak. To convince people to join in the work of the Lord everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 we have an example of this. Isaiah wrote the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. That I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Who is this speaking of? This was primarily for speaking of the Lord Jesus. He's given me the tongue of the learned. That's what Jesus came to do. He was the word of God and he spoke the truth. He spoke the gospel. He showed men how to be saved from hell. He used words to that effect. And that's what we are called to do, to continue to do. Even if you're not doing it, you Pray for those who go off to do it. You support those who go off to do it. Because it's the word of God that will build up the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not programs. One of the uh, problems we have fallen into in recent times is that we think. That mission work is digging wells and building hospitals. That somehow things will get better. And people will be converted if you dig wells and build hospitals. Don't get me wrong. Wells are good. Hospitals are good. Schools are good. But preaching is the foundation. It's the faster way to build. Is that when people hear the gospel and they change their lifestyle, their countries get better. That's what has always happened. Europe, Europe was quite a savage place. Till the gospel got there. What a difference it made. Everywhere the gospel goes, the role of the place of women is always improved. Society improves. When we move away from God, that's when society falls apart. And it's the word of God that's going to be the focus. So Nehemiah said we need to build. But you notice that important thing. He didn't say, you go. I'll be supervising. He said, let us go and build. He was playing his part in it as well. But then why did he say this? Nehemiah's appeal was based on the glory of God. You notice he said here in uh, verse 17 and 18. You see the distress we are in. The city was laid waste and the city was in waste. The gates burned. the, The city from which Messiah would come. The enemy was coming. And the danger was real. Now we don't have that burn city gates, but we had yesterday in one of the biggest marches downtown with hundreds and hundreds of people screaming out, we are here and we are queer and we're coming for your children. That's what they shouted. You think the church isn't in danger? You think they're not coming for your children? Why do you think all these perverts want to get to teach your children and read to them in libraries and and get access to them in schools? Because they're making this bunch of people like they are. Citizens of hell. What is interesting too is Nehemiah was really working for the glory of God, not for himself. You know, he had a very comfortable life back in Shushan. Shushan. He got to meet diplomats. He got to eat the best foods. He was wealthy. You will see later on in chapter 5, every day he was there in Jerusalem, he killed a cow, several sheep, and chickens and things just from his own pocket. He had a good life. But he knew something more important. And he was willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He could have just minded his own business and rest on his laurels. But as a covenant child, he could not remain silent. He said, see the distress we are in. Was he in any distress? Personally, no. He knew Jesus. He was rich and he was comfortable. But he was thinking beyond himself. And then he says look you see we are in reproach. Again we. He was well liked. Remember what the king did for him. The king said "Ah, you go I'll give you safe passage. Not only that. I'll give you timber to build a house. Not only that. I'll send security to, to take you to make sure you're safe. He had everything. But he said we are in reproach. Don't think because the church. The reformed churches are generally solid. That we can rest. The people of God are in reproach. And he said. More confidently though. You see God will help a repentant people. He explained God's providence. He told him. He said look. God put it in my heart to be here. And look how God worked to send me here. Look we have the tools. Look we have the money. Look we have the people it's time for us to work, to build the city again. It is remarkable that Nehemiah did not begin with like I would. What have you people been doing all this time? You've been, you've been sent back from captivity now for about 20, 30 years. What have you been doing? I would have started with a rebuke, not him. We have big things to do now. We can't live in the past. We have to press on with what needs to be done in the future. And then when he spoke, his words worked. The people set their minds and their hands to rebuild. What a speaker he was. God blessed his words and the people joined. And it was words that he was speaking. He was speaking about the glory of God, not his own. He was speaking of King Jesus. You know, in the past, the fathers lost God's favor by their disobedience. But now they would regain it by their diligence. They were going to get ready to work. So what can we learn here? First of all, we learn about the examination of the destruction of Jerusalem, but now here's the exhortation to reconstruction. What are lessons for us? Four of them I have. First, when you want people to change their lives and live godly lives, you must start with your big argument. You know, some people would say, Oh, you should go to church because if you go to church, it's good for your children to learn discipline. Your children will be good. Uh, that's the, about the weakest argument you can start. with. There's nothing wrong in taking children to church because it's good for them. But you go to church because this is about the glory of Christ. That's where Nehemiah was concerned about. And that's where you need to start. Why do you need to go to church? It's about the glory of Christ. You know, you can trust your children and say, I'm going to bring them to church, raise them well, and they'll take care of me when I'm old. Maybe, maybe not. You can't count on that, can you? You can always count on God taking care of you. But if you want children to go to church, you start with the glory of Christ. Second, don't start with, uh, or sorry, your children are, are, are sinful and your children will never do for you What the Lord Jesus did for you. And that's why you must appeal to Christ's work. Next, a few words well placed are more beneficial than the eloquent rambling of fools. You think about this. Think of some of the great preachers. Many of them, you know, if if anyone heard Jonathan Edwards, probably would have failed classical exams because he couldn't, he just read everything with his head pointed down but then you look at some of the people on television and they're so articulate and they look so remarkable and they've got all the gesticulations and the hand action, you think wow they speak so well, they can enunciate and yet what comes from their mouth often would be the rambling of fools you couldn't trust what they say One of the most prolific speakers was Schuller. And one of the most profound pieces of nonsense that came from his mouth was, If it's got to be, it's up to me. And he would pound his hand and he would look so imperious, majestic. That was just absolute nonsense. And he had the largest television audience in the history of the world. The words you speak must be based upon Christ. You might be fumbling. Don't be discouraged if you're not the most articulate when you teach your children. You tell them about Jesus. Let them hear about Jesus and they will grow. One more. United in faith leads to united in effort. When you have that unity of faith, that's what makes us work together. It's not who we can get along with. Who believes in Jesus? Who's interested in the glory of the one who gave up heaven for us? That's the one. If you're united in faith, it will be good. It'll be okay. You know, you could be in a foreign country. You could be lost and everything gone and you find a Christian, a Christian brother, a true Christian brother. And it's all better because you know your brother will take care of you. Why we're united in faith and it's that same unity that will help us as we work for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, let's come to the third point exclusion from the congregation. He looked at the dangers, he exhorted the people to speak, and the people said, Yes, we're going to build. But look at something that we don't often like to talk about, but we need to. Nehemiah immediately faced opposition from three horrible men. One name was Sandalak, his name meant strength or courage. But he was a half-breed Jew. He did not want to see Jerusalem restored as it was a threat to Samaria. You know, the Jews were always known for being in business. Making money, that was the problem during the time of the uh, Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the uh, Greek captivity under Antiochus Epiphanes, as well as the time of Cyrus in AD 70 when the Romans came. They loved money and they were good at business. Sanbalat saw this as a threat. If they could reconstitute, if they could get their walls, they could challenge us in business. He didn't want that. Then there was Tobiah. Tobiah means God is good. He was a former slave, but he was appointed as an official in Ammon, across the, on the east side of the Jordan River. He was a cohort of Sanbalat. And then there was another man named Gisham. Geshem was the Arab. He particularly hated Nehemiah because his actions would threaten the Arabs whom Sargon, the Assyrian king, had brought into Samaria where 10 and a half tribes were taken captive. Half the people were taken away into slavery and foreigners were brought in. They kept their uh, religion. They kept their lifestyle. And they were a threat, these Arabs, to the true people of God that one and a half tribes in the, in the south called Judah. Now these three men were enemies of each other. But they had a greater enemy, the people of God. So they joined together to fight the people of God. The thing is, to be against Jerusalem was to be against the Savior. Jerusalem. That's where the peace would come. Salem. That's what your name means. Shalom from the same group. That's where peace would come. And they didn't want that. They opposed that. Now, how did these men oppose Nehemiah and his plans to rebuild the walls? In the last uh, verse 19. Historically, these men had written to the king in Shushan, the Medo Persian king, where Nehemiah was. Saying these people are causing trouble. They're going to rebuild these walls. And they're going to rebel against the king. So the king ordered. And you can read about this in in Ezra. Ordered the stopping of the rebuilding of the walls. But now we have these three men there. Look at what they did. Think about these three things before we close. One they laughed. They laughed. They laughed at us. You know. It doesn't matter how important you are. If someone laughs at you It hurts. If they laugh in your face, it hurts even more. And that's what they did. First thing was to laugh. The second thing was to hate or despise Nehemiah and what he was doing. They could not stand the fact that the walls would be rebuilt and stability would come to Judah again. That would be bad for their finances. And it would be bad for their pride as well. And then not only did they hate, when that didn't work, when they mocked them, when they laughed at them, They then accused Nehemiah, thirdly, of treason. This was a capital offense. They said, will you rebel against the king? Insinuating, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're doing. But they were counting on lying and causing local people to believe. You know, sometimes you throw out something and and you cause the damage. Remember the picture of, of the man who sent a message from a U.S. submarine and sent it to Washington and said, the captain was sober today. He was speaking what was technically the truth but he didn't say the captain was sober yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and the captain didn't drink. But what can be looked upon in a tricky way and say the captain was sober today that's what they're doing here. Nehemiah is threatening rebellion against the king and then people will hear and the news would get back to the king and the king would stop Nehemiah. These were liars. People who couldn't handle the truth. And they twist things. You think they were working for the CBC or something. I couldn't help that. But that's what you find. They don't tell the truth. They twist the truth. And it's not hard to see that. But Nehemiah did not get in the mud with them Because he knew he was doing what God called him to do He knew wicked people would want to destroy God's people Accusing them of treason in that time Was the worst possible accusation But even with the threat Even with serious opposition Nehemiah declared you could say what you want. God will prosper our work. He was displaying his faith, and he was causing, the, and God would cause the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. And he said, "Furthermore, you three men, you have no part in Jerusalem. You have no part in the coming glory." Denying their claims, he said, "You have no interest in redemption." They had no interest in preparing the place from which the Lord would come. No wonder. Nehemiah never told them, the king sent me here, the king gave me everything to come here. He didn't even bother to tell them it was not worth it to these men because they were so wicked. The opposition was there and he had to deal with it. What can we learn? Four things. First of all, when people oppose how you live, how you you, you interact with your wife, how you raise your children, how you worship, how you vote, how you choose your job, how you determine who your friends are, Just take what God's word says. Don't change your way because they laugh at you. They don't like the way you're training your children. Your children are dressing that way. Get with the program. Dress the way the other kids kids are doing. Spend more money than you take in. Like everybody else. Why are you acting that way? Why are you denying yourself? That's the word they would use. Well, because you don't have money. Well, we don't have money, but we're spending too. Canada's a nation at the brink of collapse because of people borrowing money that they can't repay. You don't have to follow the way they work. You follow the way God says. Second, when people hate you for doing what is right, don't stop doing it. Jesus said, in fact, you need to count on people hating you. And if people don't hate you, either you are perfect I don't think so. None of us is. Or maybe you're not living that strong Christian life in front of them. Don't be ashamed. When you're at work and you're about to eat. Make sure you bow your head and pray like you always do. When you have time to want to read your Bible. Don't be ashamed of it. Live that way. Don't stop doing what is good. The kingdom needs you to keep working. Third When people pose you for opposing wickedness, you should first stop and think, is there something that these people are doing that is wicked? If the government is doing something that's wicked, you don't need to be quiet or just go along with the program. You know what's the word you hear? Why can't we all get along? You know why we we can't all get along? Because we can't get along. God says we can't get along. We have different goals Our lives are different. We're geared towards different ends. We have different loyalties. For God will destroy all those who oppose him. Often in this life, and surely in the life to come, it's not our job to be distracted. We have a greater goal at hand. Let's conclude. Nehemiah carefully considered what needed to be done. He then confronted and challenged the local leaders to do it. He then prepared himself for opposition to his noble work. So brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Jesus died and provided everything you needed for your body and soul for you to do the work and build up the church of Jesus Christ. He provided everything you needed. Second, you must build. And you have to build in two ways. It's evangelizing those who are on the outside, but also the strengthening of those who are broken on the inside. We can go either way. Sometimes some churches are so focused on evangelism. They forget to care for the souls of the people. Those who are struggling. We are under an epidemic. It's not COVID. The epidemic of people who are discouraged and sad. Struggling with depression. We need to care for them. We need to talk to them. We need to help them. Pray for them. Brothers and sisters. The church is struggling. Many have been exposed to dangers. Teaching of doctrines sort of been pushed aside. Ask your friends who are from other churches, when was the last time someone was put under discipline? Ask them how to use the sacraments. How is it given? Be bold. Confront sin and build. But there's one more thing as you Build. Learn to work with others to accomplish this good work. You can't do it by yourself. Support your elders when you get your pastor. Support your missionaries. Support your brothers and sisters in Christ. Help those in other denominations, people who are struggling, who don't understand doctrine. Don't be afraid. Don't say, you have your way, I have mine. If your way is right, you wouldn't want to keep it quiet, would you? You'd want to challenge and help others. And finally, for those who are not believers, to oppose God is death. If you wish to spend eternity in hell, continue to oppose God. But if you're wise and you want to please God, ask him to show you your sin, show you the work of the Savior, and to give you faith to receive what he has done. Then your destiny will be changed from hell.